All right, well, uh, if we're ready, we will go ahead and begin. Let me open us up in a time of prayer together as we go to the Lord in prayer to ask him to bless our time. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can come again once, uh, once again this morning to gather with your people, the church, that you have redeemed, that you have saved, that you have set apart for yourself, and that you have adopted as your own those of us who belong to you because you have worked through faith in Christ to bring us to yourself. And we are so grateful not only for providing Christ, but for your saving work toward us through him. And we thank you for your word that we can come and that we can study together. And we thank you in particular for this letter that we've been studying of 2 Timothy, uh, for all that it says about your word, for what it says about the scriptures and how it helps us to be drawn back to them, uh, to be solidified in our understanding of them and understanding the importance of knowing them rightly, but also of holding fast to them and proclaiming them. We pray that you might help us as we come to a conclusion of this letter this morning uh, to have these convictions deepened within us, that we would stand firm in the truth of God, that we would not waver, that we would not shrink back, that we wouldn't be timid as Timothy was tempted to be, but instead that we would be bold, that we would be steadfast, that we would be earnest to see your truth preserved and proclaimed, not only uh, amongst ourselves here, but also outside our church and for generations to come. God, we pray that you would give us grace now to understand what you have said, to be encouraged by the examples that are here, and we pray that you would get, uh, that you be glorified as your word is proclaimed and taught. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so we are coming to the end of the book of 2 Timothy. We're going to be this morning in verses 9 through 22, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 22. If you would turn there, if you have not already done so, and we will read uh, starting in verse 9. So the Apostle Paul writes these words, as you know, from his imprisonment, uh, what seemed to be the last uh, weeks, months of his life. He knows his death is imminent. As he says in verse 6, he's already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of his departure has come. And so he writes these words with that imminent departure to death and to be with the Lord in mind. So verse 9 says, Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. Make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, also Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace 
be with you. Well, this is quite a different passage than most of what we're used to studying, isn't it? What stands out to you as we approach this? What is notable to you about this text that is uh, distinct, if not unique, among the passages of the Bible that you have studied before or that you see elsewhere? Tell me some observations that you have. Okay, yeah, a lot of things about everyday life rather than just high-level doctrines. Yep, what else? Yeah, specific and granular about people in his life and their, their roles in his life. Yeah. Yeah, lots of people's names. Yeah, Mark. Urgency. Yeah, urgency. You notice that multiple places, don't you? I mean, verse 9, make every effort to come to me soon. Verse 21, make every effort to come before winter. Yeah, and that's just the timeline of urgency, you know. But there's, there's a sense of urgency as far as the importance of what's being done uh, that's there as well. Yeah, I agree. What else? Very personal. Mm -hmm. It is very personal, isn't it? Yeah. Paul had developed um, lots of various relationships in the church and in doing um, gospel ministry. We're going to look at some of those as we go through. But yeah, there, there's, a, there's a lot of that. And in particular, it's personal about you know, his own desires, how he thinks, how, what he wants, his circumstances that he's in, and his, his relationship with Timothy as well. Yeah. Anything else? What's that? He calls out his opposition. He does. Yeah, Alexander the coppersmith. Yeah, he, he names him. And that's not the only time that Paul does that. Um, not even the only time in this letter. We've noticed that in, what, chapter 2? In verse 17, Hymenaeus and Philetus, um, chapter 1, verse 15, he names Phagellus and Hermogenes who have turned away from him. And again, in, uh, he also mentions Hymenaeus and Alexander in 1 Timothy 1. Um, may have been the same Alexander, although I'm, I'm doubtful about that. He doesn't call him there Alexander the coppersmith. He refers to him as someone who has turned away or has, who has shipwrecked his faith. So I'm not sure it's the same person. But point is, yeah, lot, he, uh, he calls out opponents and he does so very specifically. And he tells Timothy to be on guard uh, against them. Okay, anything else? Yeah, Mark. Yeah, yeah, besides Luke, he is alone. Lots of people in other places, but... Paul is alone apart from Luke. I find it really interesting that he wants Timothy to come to him. It's almost like he downplays that only Luke is with him. Um, he seems to value Timothy's company more than anyone, maybe even more than Luke, which is really fascinating to me uh, that 
perhaps this would be a cause for other people to take this personally. You know, why does Paul want Timothy with him so badly? I mean, Paul, am I not enough for you as your friend Luke? Why do you need Timothy to come on a personal encouragement level? There are reasons why he wants Timothy to come for other purposes, for bringing his personal items, as we'll see. But uh, he, he wants Timothy to be there with him. He values his relationship with Timothy to that degree. So uh, it is very interesting how Paul is just simply willing to say that. Okay, let's, uh, let's just kind of work through the text. We'll make some observations as we go, try to draw some lessons out as far as uh, what this means for, uh, in particular, what we should prioritize, uh, the importance of the gospel ministry all the way to the end, um, also how we would go about promoting and defending it, and then the place of other people in our own Christian life and in Christian ministry and how we can cultivate those kinds of, uh, those kind of relationships and partnerships in ministry and in the church. So the first 10 verses of this, verses 9 through 18, contain Paul's final instructions for Timothy. His final instructions, uh, verses 19 through 22, are going to include his final greetings. But 9 through 18 contain his final instructions. And the first thing he gives is a request to visit quickly. A request to visit Quickly, he says, make every effort to come to me soon. Uh, why does he want Timothy to come to him soon? What is the driving motivation behind that according to verses 10 through 12? What do you see? We've talked about it already a little bit, but what is it? He's alone. Yeah, only Luke is with me, verse 11. So he did have Demas with him, but Demas has deserted him and gone to Thessalonica. And then these other guys uh, have gone somewhere else as well. Crescens, uh, Titus, they are no longer with him. Tychicus, or Tychicus, depending on how you like to say his name, is not with him. He's been sent to Ephesus. Uh, Mark is on the way to Paul, and Timothy wants, or Timothy is supposed to bring him. We'll talk about him in just a moment. But he's wanting Timothy to come to him because almost everybody else is somewhere else. Now, the reasons why this is the case are, of course, very different. You can see here that there is one that's emphasized, and it is a tragic tale. Uh, verse 10, Demas has deserted Paul. Why? Because he loved this present world. Demas has loved this present world. Demas is showing up here not for the first time. Does anyone else know where Demas has been previously mentioned? You can do a quick cross-reference search there if you like. What else do we know about Demas? Well, in Colossians 4.14... We read, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings, and also Demas. Uh, Demas there is with Paul. This is during Paul's first Roman imprisonment. Um, he is writing, and Demas is seeming to be a fellow brother, fellow faithful worker. But um, when we get to 2 Timothy 4, Paul uh, doesn't have really anything neutral to say about Demas. He says, he's abandoned me. 
he has deserted me. He's gone to Thessalonica, and the reason he's done so is because he has loved this present world. Now, he doesn't specify exactly what the indicator is of having loved this present world, except for the fact that he has deserted Paul. So what do we make of this? Well, um, what has Paul been exhorting Timothy to do relating to Paul throughout the early parts of this letter? Those of you who have been here for the early parts of 2 Timothy. When he talks to, to Timothy and he says, this is what I want you to think about me. What has he been saying? Don't be what? Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of me and my chains. Join with me in suffering. Timothy, we are partners. You are my protege. We're in this together. We're friends. You're my true child in the faith. I'm your father in the gospel. So we have this relationship. But Demas has preferred something else to all of that. And instead he has preferred this present world. Um, has Demas abandoned Paul for possessions? Has he abandoned him for pleasure? Um, maybe most likely he has abandoned him just to avoid persecution and the stigma and the reproach that would come by being associated with Paul. He doesn't say absolutely and specifically how he knows he has loved this present world other than the fact that he has deserted me. Um, but he has. He has left him and he's left Paul all alone. The others, thankfully, don't seem to be put in this light. Crescens has gone to Galatia. There's nothing about him deserting Paul. He's just gone somewhere else. He's not with him anymore. Titus, who we know to be a faithful brother in many ways, uh, has gone to Dalmatia. Titus was not only the subject of the letter to Titus that comes right after 2 Timothy, but he was also mentioned in other places about some, as someone who was Paul's uh, traveling companion and then his emissary that he sent out to help strengthen the churches. So then all he has left is Luke because verse 12 says, Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Um, so yeah, Paul's alone. Paul is alone. What do you notice here about what he wants from Timothy in addition to coming? Verse 11, what does he want? Okay, yep, he does. Let me uh, put that one on pause and come back to that in a second uh, because there's something personal he wants as well that's not possessions but a person. Who does he want according to verse 11? Mark. Okay. And what does he say about Mark? Pick him up and bring him with you for he is useful to me for service. Now this wouldn't really stand out if this was the only mention that we had of Mark. But why is this significant? What's that? Okay. He didn't want to take Mark with him. One of his missionary journeys back in Acts. Why? Why didn't he take, why didn't he want to take Mark? Didn't like him? Smelled bad? Yeah, he did. So Paul and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey together in Acts 13. And it wasn't very long before Barnabas' cousin, John Mark, known as Mark, decided he wasn't going to stick around. And so he went back. And Paul and Barnabas continued their their journey, and they preached the gospel, and God was gracious to many through them. They came back, and after the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, they were going to go back and check on the churches and see how they are. And um, Paul said, or Barnabas said, let's take Mark. And Paul said, let's not. And Barnabas said, no, we're going to. And Paul said, no, we're not. And they just kind of uh, could not come to an agreement. In fact, it says there arose such a sharp disagreement that they departed from each other. And Paul took Silas 
and Barnabas took Mark, and they went their separate ways. So yeah, Mark was not seen by Paul as very valuable for ministry. He didn't trust him. So why are we going to take this guy who deserted us last time? But what has happened in the intervening decade and a half since all that happened? Well, at some point, Mark has proved his worth. And it's a wonderful testimony that people who uh, prove in one way, maybe not ready uh, for any kind of responsibility, can grow and can prove themselves to be faithful in a ministry responsibility role. And there is, uh, I don't even want to just put it as redemption here, but there is growth that is possible. There is the building of trust that is possible so that uh, it is... It is possible for someone to do this and to even uh, re-earn credibility with someone like Paul. So he's useful to Paul. Uh, and that even says something all the more because it's not as if Paul had, you know, small things and unimportant things that he was trying to do. He, he, was, uh, he said that Mark was useful, which means that he is bringing a degree of value to him that is, uh, that is very high. So he's useful to me for service. So this is a great story of God's grace in Mark's life. Um, so then, Tychicus is sent to Ephesus, presumably replacing Timothy, who would then come from Ephesus to Paul. Just a little note there that he is not leaving Ephesus alone either. All right, so that is, uh, he wants Timothy to come, so he is there personally with him. It would then be Paul and Luke and Timothy, the old trio getting back together, uh, everyone except for Silas from that second missionary journey. Um, the other thing then is what Robert mentioned, which is in verse 13. What does he want? Two things. Yeah, cloak, right? And books. A cloak and books. Um, why does he want a cloak? Yeah, it's getting cold. That's why he wants in verse 21 to come before winter. Can you please bring my warm clothes before winter? This, this really reframes the level of provisions he has, doesn't it? It just shows you exactly how little he is living off of. He has only this cloak that he needs. Now, obviously, he's wearing other clothes at this time, presumably, but he needs this cloak before winter. And so he asked Timothy to come and to bring it. He left it at Troas with Carpus, and then he wants books. Um, what are these books? Um, really impossible to know exactly what the books are, perhaps his own writings, uh, scriptures of some kind, but he is concerned all the way to the end, not only with some degree of personal comfort, not wrong for him to want that, but also with having the tools that he needs for ministry of the word of God. So this is what he wants, and this is why he wants Timothy to come. So this is his request for Timothy to visit quickly. Any other observations or questions on that section before we look at the next one? Hmm? Mark. Um, so he doesn't say here the tradition, which would be extra biblical and not definitive and authoritative, is that he is in the Mamertine prison in Rome, which was for like the worst kind of criminals and would be um, underground uh, or at least basically underground. Um, so yeah, it wouldn't be like a house arrest like his previous, uh, his previous time in uh, that Acts 28 mentions. Yeah. Yeah. So much uh, darker circumstances from what we can tell. 
Yeah, though it's hard to know exactly what he wants to do with them. And it, it could be, well, I mean, it's maybe surprising if the primary goal is preservation. Uh, Timothy and Luke could probably do something with them when they're, when they're gone. Um, but, yeah, it's interesting. One, so he, there, there must be something distinct where he needs them himself for a purpose more than just merely preserving them and keeping them out of just, you know, the destruction or loss that might come uh, if it goes away with him and his death. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, the, uh, the language, I believe, is the, book, the, the word where it's especially can be, like, there's a big group of books and then there's a subset that I especially want you to focus on. Um, it can also be, it can, it, the language can even be, although this is rare, but it can be the books which, um, in particular, the parchments, like those are the only ones I care about, or even that's all the books that I'm talking about. Um, or it could just be the books and the parchments. So, yeah, it's hard to even make a, a rigid distinction between them definitively. Um, but, but as far as, like, the particular words and, you know, is this parchments a certain kind of book that you would write on versus books that he would be reading from, there would probably be some of both, and parchments would be more inclined that way. But uh, it, it's hard to even know that he would be writing on those and not just reading as well. It's hard to know for sure. Yeah. Okay. Brian. Yeah, he could definitely use them for that. Mm -hmm. He wants to do that all the way up until the end. I mean, he is continuing to teach Timothy right up until the end by this letter. He doesn't just say, come here. He, he goes ahead and gets him a lot of information up front. Um, he's, he's instructing him from a distance. So, yeah, it wouldn't be surprising at all if his, if his desire, his eager desire is to continue to teach and to invest in them all the way up to the end. Yeah. Yeah, okay, good. So um, final instructions for Timothy, uh, request to visit quickly. Then he gives in verses 14 and 15 a warning to be on guard. A warning to be on guard. So he identifies a man named Alexander. Alexander is a coppersmith. He is a metal worker. Um, he is possibly the Ephesian from Acts 19. He is possibly the Alexander from 1 Timothy 1, verse 20. Um, it is really, unfortunately, impossible to know definitively either way. What we do know is that Paul sees him as uh, sufficient enough of a threat, and his teaching especially as sufficient enough of a threat that he needs to single him out and make sure Timothy is aware that he needs to be on guard against him. Timothy has already been instructed in early chapters to guard the truth. Um, here he says that 
he vigorously opposed our teaching. This doesn't seem like it's a matter of personal safety that is involved, at least directly, though no doubt someone like this would not be sad to see Paul thrown in prison or Timothy thrown in prison or worse. But he is really here concerned about the ideas that Alexander would promote and the ideas that he would oppose. So he tells Timothy to be on guard against him, and it does seem to be in that stream. Make sure that this person's teaching does not take hold among believers. Make sure that you are on guard against him. He was vigorously in opposition to our teaching. He tried really hard to undermine what we are doing. Now, this is, I mean, just think about this kind of language today. We, we live in a time when people who promote false doctrine do so in ways that are, um, they're, they're meant to make it look like that's not what they're doing. Okay, like this has always been Satan's methodology is to deceive and to make it seem like things are innocent. But people will do this and they don't want to be painted this way. They want to frame their error and their contrary teaching in terms that make it look like, well, I'm just kind of in here saying things. I'm not really trying to do this. I'm just asking questions. You know, I believe most of the same things you believe. Haven't, haven't we always had disagreements as Christians? I mean, who's to say that we all are going to get it right and have the right interpretation? And they say things like that, which make it seem like they're just innocent disagreements. And we don't know about Alexander. He may have been a lot more open in his disagreement and, and said something to the effect of these guys are liars and they don't know what they're talking about. But the point is it doesn't really matter. Alexander opposed the teaching and he did so vigorously and Timothy is to be on guard against that. Um, so he calls upon him to do this. He, while he is doing this, also expresses a confidence that this man is going to be judged now, this is an amazing statement. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Um, this is not the kind of language that you might expect to hear if we were getting our Christianity entirely from today. First of all, you probably would not hear Alexander's name even be mentioned. You would hear someone say, you know, Paul, have you, um, have you private messaged Alexander yet? Have you, have you taken him out to coffee and explained to him all of the errors of his teaching? And have you given him a chance to explain himself? Well, he vigorously opposed our teaching. The idea is that other people were hearing it. This public kind of opposition to the gospel is not just appropriately, but necessarily met with public refutation of the error. It's not the Bible's instruction that someone who teaches something publicly uh, has the sort of upper hand to make you go through all of private channels and exhaust those over the course of weeks and months and years before you can say anything publicly. That's not what the church discipline process is about in Matthew 18. It's an entirely different matter. So here you have someone who opposed Paul's teaching. Be on guard against him yourself. But he says, uh, it's also surprising not only in the fact that he calls him out, that he names him, but, but also the attitude toward him. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. He doesn't say anything here about a desire for this person to turn from his evil ways and come to know the Lord. Now, this isn't because Paul wouldn't ultimately want that. 
But that's not the only thing that the Bible says about people who are sinning, and in particular, people who oppose the truth. So it isn't that Paul is saying, I don't want him to repent. He isn't saying, I don't want him to be saved. But this guy is certainly on such a trajectory of opposing the gospel that it kind of looks like this is where he's headed. And assuming that that is the case, he says, I'm confident that the Lord is going to judge him. He's going to repay him. Now, again, this kind of gets us uncomfortable a little bit, I think, because we say, how dare Paul even have a hint that we might be okay with God judging someone. We want everyone to be forgiven. We want everyone to be saved. Well, Paul, of course, knew this to be true. I mean, he wanted to preach the gospel to everyone so that everyone would be saved. But there is also, at the same time, a recognition that people who don't repent will be judged. And there is a special desire that Paul has to see that people who would try to turn other people away from the truth would not be able to eternally get away with it if they never turn away from their sins. One more caveat to this is, of course, the, that Paul himself had tried to, uh, to keep people from believing the gospel. So he knew salvation. He knew what it was like to oppose the faith. And he knew what it was like to be forgiven despite having done that. But here is someone who is very hostile toward the truth. And unless he turns, Paul wants to express his confidence that God is going to deal with him. Christ is going to deal with him according to judgment. Um, he doesn't tell Timothy that Timothy needs to repay him according to his deeds. There's no personal vengeance here whatsoever. He's going to be judged by the Lord according to what he has done. And this is exactly what Paul commanded elsewhere in such places as Romans 12, 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but do what? Leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This is an amazing statement because... Uh, we might think, never take your own revenge, beloved, because revenge is wrong. He doesn't say that. He says, revenge is God's prerogative. He is the one who does this. And in fact, when we try to take revenge on someone, we're stealing God's role. We're usurping his role as the judge. So God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And we need to entrust him with that responsibility. Um, so we don't take vengeance. And Paul was not to take vengeance. And Timothy was not to take vengeance upon him. But he does say... What is our sphere of responsibility? It is to, uh, to stand guard against his opposition to the gospel. That's all that we can do. We pray to God that God would turn them away from that. And we, we do our work. We labor on our part to protect people from the errors of what we hear around us. Um, and then we're not afraid to actually identify when someone is doing something that is harmful and that is wrong. So this is what Paul says about Alexander the coppersmith. Um, questions about him? Any, any uh, comments on this particular section and what Paul says for Timothy to do? Be on guard. Let the Lord take vengeance. Make sure you're diligent as he opposes what we're about. Oh, hand over. Oh, Jesse, yeah. Yeah. 
it, was he a professing believer before? Uh, if it was the guy from First Timothy six or one, um, then yeah. Um, if it's the guy from Acts nineteen, then probably not. I wish I knew. Yeah. Sometimes former professing Christians are some of the most hostile opponents of Christianity. They've got, they have an axe to grind, um, or they have a lot of. Uh, there's a lot of desire to justify their newfound unbelief, and the more people they can get to join them, um, the more that they can feel good about that. So, yeah, wouldn't surprise me. Alexander may have deconstructed. Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Yep, the Acts 19 group mm-hmm, in Ephesus. Yeah, yeah, maybe so. Yeah, he's, he's mad because, uh, the, you know, Paul comes into town and starts telling people that the things he's making aren't real. They're just, you know, they're just made up. Um, yeah, that's, you know, if you're, if you're a car manufacturer, people come in and start convincing everyone that your cars don't drive, like, you're going to be pretty unhappy about it. You're just going to see it from the business side of things. Um, it's not about whether it's true eternally. It's just, hey, they're taking away all our money, you know. And that's what they were mad about. And then they tried to convince all the people that it was really a religious issue when they went public with it. So deceptive even there. Yeah, Matt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's um, there's popularity to be found in that as well, and some other benefits that might come with being the guy that's the vocal, you know, uh, friendly former Christian. Yep, yep. It's true. Um, all right. Let's keep moving because we got a, a few more things to cover. There is uh, not only this warning to be on guard, but then also an encouragement to Timothy to stand alone. Encouragement to stand alone. And this is by way of example, but Paul says, look, not only has all this happened, opposition, desertion, but verse 16, at my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. Uh, Who could Paul perhaps look to in history as someone else who had been deserted by everyone? The Lord Jesus himself, right? Jesus was... Uh, on the cross, and what did his disciples do? They ran. John um, does seem to have at least had the confidence to be somewhat nearby, but they they scattered. They ran away from him. And Peter, who was the most vocal defender, at least the most vocal promising defender, uh, turned out to run away as well and deny Jesus three times. But Paul is not embittered about this. He says, may it not be counted against them. What an attitude to have. Here's Paul. They're in his greatest moment of need. Paul is all alone before presumably the emperor of Rome or at least someone very powerful. And he is defending himself on charges uh, that could result in his own death. And everybody leaves him. 
He's by himself. You think about all the value that Paul finds in these other relationships that he has. He wants Luke with him. He wants Timothy with him. He greets these other people. He developed these gospel relationships all over the map. And yet he's left alone. He didn't even want to go alone on his missionary journeys. You know, a lot of times today people forget this point, but Paul basically was never alone. I mean, he was always taking somebody with him. And uh, a lot of times today it's not like that. It's just one person doing this or that. Even when you find somebody out going and doing evangelism on the street or preaching or something, they're on their own. But Paul was rarely alone. This was an exception to the rule for him. Everybody deserted him. And yet he's not bitter against them. Think about all the things that we are bitter against that are so much less than abandoning you in your greatest moment of need as you're on trial before the ruling power of the world for the sake of the gospel. Something that he's been wanting to do for decades. Um, But the Lord, he says, the Lord provided what I needed. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me. Um, This speaks of it in a kind of literal way. You know, I, I think it's, it's difficult to know um, whether he sort of literally made a, an appearance of some kind. The Lord did appear to Paul, uh, at least on a couple of occasions, when he was revealing himself to him and teaching him the gospel. And it's possible, I suppose, that in this way he was with him. Um, it could be that he is just sort of speaking metaphorically here. He's saying, I knew that the Lord was with me and he strengthened me. Um, but either way, the Lord was the one who was on his side and that was enough for Paul. He had the strength of Christ, and this is what he needed. And not only that, but he didn't just help Paul to cope with the situation, but he helped him to actually positively go out and do what God had instructed him to do. He said, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. This was Paul's entire goal since the time that he was called into ministry. He was called to take the gospel to the nations, to the Gentiles, not just to the Jews as had been done largely to that time, but to the Gentiles, to the nations. And this was what he saw as kind of a culmination of this. It would be like work, uh, excuse me, working your way toward getting, uh, toward getting a gospel presentation done, not only in various places around the world, but at something like the United Nations, where it's all the world leaders who are there. This would be Paul's the, the peak, here he is alone when he needed the most help, but the Lord's help was enough. And Christ was with him. And so it is for us as well. There are great benefits to having other people with us, to encourage us, to help us when we're trying to do something that honors God. We know how hard it is to be alone. And Paul didn't downplay that. He said that he wants other people with him. It's clear throughout this. He wanted help. He needed help. But even when that doesn't work out, and there are times when we're all by ourselves, when we're all alone, there's nobody else to help us to minister in those cases. The Lord can strengthen us and he can enable us to do even the most ambitious thing, not to mention the smallest acts of faithfulness that we might be instructed to do. So he says, I did this so that all the Gentiles might hear and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. He was delivered from death. He was delivered from what would have been a death sentence. He sees this. He sees that he was supported 
Christ supports him now and has supported him, but he also then goes forward into expressing a confidence about what he will do in the future. And now Paul knows that he won't be rescued in the absolute sense from death now. He knows that his departure is imminent. He knows he is about to die. And so he has to look somewhere else because his time on earth is running out. So what does he say in verse 18? The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. And will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Um, God does rescue people out of various evils. Can you think of anything in the Bible where God rescued people? Even in miraculous ways? Daniel, yeah. Multiple times, right? Daniel was, he was going to get in trouble for the food. He was, uh, he was in the, the lion's den. His friends were going to be burned up in the furnace. Yeah, what else? David? Okay. Lots of times, right? Saul's trying to take his life. Yep. Yep, David was rescued. He was rescued from the Philistines. You know, they were going to kill him because he's the one who had slain all the the thousands and ten thousands. And God delivered him through David's actions pretending to be uh, insane. What else? Israel. Yeah, Israel had been delivered from... Many, many different uh, problems, starting with Egypt and then going on to um, all of the people who had oppressed them over time. Yeah. Yeah, lots of people. Um, And even Paul here was delivered from what he sort of frames as certain danger, the lion's mouth. Um, God can rescue from the most impossible circumstances. But here's the thing. Even... For all of us, at some point, the end of that will come. We will meet death if the Lord doesn't first return. But that doesn't take away this idea that the Lord is going to rescue us. Because here's what he says. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. There's an interesting word here that's used. It's not an uncommon word. But when he says from, there are some options that he has in the, the original language to express that and there's there's a word that can mean out of like rescuing me out of danger that's not the one he uses here it's actually the one rescuing me uh, away from kind of just not even near danger and I think the idea here is when he says that the Lord is not just getting him out of sticky situations it's that he's completely getting him away from them entirely at some point in the future and this aligns with the timing of when he will bring him safely to his heavenly kingdom that paul is going to be out of the presence of every evil deed he's not even going to be around them Um, he's going to save me deliver me to his heavenly kingdom this is a promise for not only him of course but for who all of us everybody who's a christian that's why he says in verse 8 that the crown of righteousness will be awarded to paul but not just paul but all who have loved his appearing so god is a god who delivers and he is going to deliver not only Paul, but also all of us from all of the evil deeds that are around us. Is this your answer to getting out of the evil circumstances that you find yourself in? When you look at people who are doing evil deeds, can you see a few evil deeds? Like, could you name them for me if I asked you? Evil deeds going on around you, in your life, in the world around you, the way people treat you, the way that society acts, of course. So what's the way to be rescued from them? Well, it's going to be God bringing us into his heavenly kingdom. And so he praises him. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He ends this section with uh, his final greetings for Timothy. 
he's going to greet Timothy himself, but he wants to pass these along. Uh, not only his own greetings, but also the greetings of those who are with him. He sends a greeting to his friends, Prisca and Aquila, the household of Onesiphorus. He's already talked about Onesiphorus, his, uh, the household of Onesiphorus, who was a man who refreshed Paul when he was in Rome and uh, had often refreshed him, in fact, and was not ashamed of Paul's chains. And he wished for God's mercy upon this house of Onesiphorus. Um, Prisca and Aquila is also, uh, this Prisca is also known as Priscilla. These were Jews who had worked aside, uh, alongside Paul as tent makers in Corinth, in the city of Corinth, because the Jews had been kicked out of Rome. So they went to Corinth, and then Paul shows up to Corinth after he had been driven out a lot of other places. And he, uh, he stayed with them. He was, doing, he was working with them to make money while he waited for, for uh, Timothy and for Silas to come from Macedonia. They uh, went with him to Ephesus and stayed there when he left. Apollos came and strengthened the brethren, and the church was started there in Ephesus uh, alongside their ministry. Uh, he was with Paul in Ephesus when, he, or they were with Paul in Ephesus when he wrote 1 Corinthians, according to the end of that book, and they had a church that met in their house. And then when Paul wrote Romans a few years later, they were there as well in Rome. Romans 16.3 tells us this. Now they're back in Ephesus where Timothy is. These two seem to just be, I just, I, I love these two. Um, they are, they're just faithful believers, faithful servants of the Lord who are eager to see the work of ministry go forth. They're eager to see the gospel go forth. They love the church. They host the church. They serve people. They serve Paul. And they're partners with Paul in ministry. And, you know, you, you just get the impression that Paul might say, like, I couldn't do this without them. You know, and in some places there are certain things that he uh, owed them and he wouldn't have been able to do it without them. So this is, uh, I, I just, I love that they're mentioned here. They show up all over the New Testament and they are an encouraging example for me of the value of uh, just serving alongside other people, serving the church, being faithful believers, and the value that that provides uh, and the eternal glory that that gives to God. He, uh, he not only greets these two, but he also sends an update on his fellow workers. Erastus remained at Corinth. Trophimus, I left sick at Miletus. Um, Corinth, by the way, was not an easy place to minister. Trophimus was a Greek from Ephesus, we learn in Acts 21. And Paul was seen with him, and this kind of became the excuse that the Jews made to say that Paul had brought someone who was uncircumcised into the temple. They falsely accused him. Paul left him in Miletus, which was uh, near Ephesus, near Ephesus along the coast. But he was what? When he was at Eph uh, Miletus, he left him what? What does it say? Sick. Why? Did, did, uh, did Trophimus not have enough faith to be healed? Did Paul not uh, have enough faith to heal him? This is one of the passages that helps us understand that the things people say about faithful believers, not, uh, or faithful believers being able to overcome their sicknesses and illnesses and things like that just by virtue of spiritual maturity and belief uh, this just blows a hole in that. If Paul could not heal him, then there must be more going on than just simply faith being how someone is healed. Um, Trophimus was sick, and Paul left him there. 
Maybe these two had started with Paul on the journey to Rome from Ephesus when Paul had last seen Timothy, and then they were... um, They stopped in these places along the way. He gives him another request to come soon as well. He says, make every effort to come before winter, presumably because it's going to get cold. He needs the cloak. Also, he wants his company sooner as well. Then there are some people who have passed greetings uh, at some point along the way. They're probably not with Paul at the moment. And these may have been people who were part of the Roman church, but not with him there in prison. Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, and Claudia, and then all the brethren. Again, there is a mutual love that is going on here among all of these people. He may have personally known. Timothy may have personally known. He may not, but they are saying, they're sending their greetings to one another. And then he gives one final request. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. And this is what Timothy's going to need. Uh, he says in chapter 2, verse 1, do what? Be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. And now he prays that this grace would be with Timothy. This is the last word that we have from Paul. After this, what happened to Paul? Well, church tradition tells us that he was, in fact, executed sometime after this, not that long after this. And uh, it was left with Timothy and then left to not only Timothy, but everyone who would take God's word after him. Those who would have 2 Timothy in their pockets. Those who would take it around and who would proclaim the same message, the same message of salvation. And this is our job, isn't it, to stay faithful to the word of God and to make sure that as Paul had as his desire, all the Gentiles might hear, knowing that God will protect us and preserve us and that he will one day bring us to his heavenly kingdom just as he did with the apostle Paul. And so this was Paul's time. He was passing it along to Timothy in Timothy's time. And now it's our time. So what are we going to do with this? That's the challenge for us as we finish this book. And I hope that you will take it to heart and be faithful to preserve and to proclaim God's word as diligently as you can. Let's pray together. God, thank you that we get to be uh, those who are entrusted with this great responsibility of having the truth which is handed down once for all to the saints. Thank you that you've given it to us. Thank you that we can know it. Thank you we can understand it. Help us to understand it more, not only more clearly, but also with an obedient heart. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.